0: This is Keep Up. I'm your host, Cynthia Dill. With me today is Jonathan Sarbeck. He's the District Attorney for Cumberland County. Welcome, Mr. District Attorney.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm so pleased that you're here, and I want to just jump right in with some questions about... um, the election if you had to uh tell the story of your election to say some children in a bedtime uh, hour uh how how would it go
1: well my whole uh, the whole reason i got into this campaign was because i think that the opioid epidemic is the biggest problem that we're facing not in this not just in this uh, county but also across this country so that was my goal in stepping in um i can tell I would tell tell the story that I got in. I ran as an independent because I think that the district attorney needs to be an apolitical position. Uh, we don't need a Democrat. We don't need a Republican. We need somebody that understands the role of the district attorney. And that was. Can I just ask?
0: I, I want to interrupt here. just quickly. Had you been um, a participant in the political process as an independent prior to your running for district attorney?
1: No, I've never run for anything before in my life. But um, had
0: you been like um, a voter? Had you been registered as an independent voter and kind of thought yourself as an independent when it came to politics?
1: No, I've always envisioned myself as a moderate. Um, I was a registered Republican. I, I, when in 2000, I worked for Olympia Snow, and I really liked the way that she approached um, politics and. Uh, when the year 2000, um, I was looking at uh, candidates for president at that time, and my choices between the Democrats and the Republicans were John McCain as a Republican and Bill Bradley as a Democrat. Um, both of them did not make it out of the primary, and so I always sort of envisioned that we needed a more of a moderate um, to be in in politics. I uh, registered as a Republican, and I in Maine, uh, one of the most sort of kind of infuriating processes that we have is that uh, to vote in primaries you need to be part of a political party uh, so I stayed as a Republican but when it came down to actually making the choice to run for office I did not want to be part of uh, either of the political parties especially running for district attorney which I uh, vehemently believe should not be a political position
0: so you don't think it should be but it is so now um, you jumped in the race and um, described yourself uh, as an independent. Did you find that, um, I guess what I was, what I think is interesting as far as a bedtime story is you got in the race with two mm-hmm. opponents, yes. but you ended up with none. Right. Well, actually, I got
1: into the race with five opponents. Okay. So, well, f- four opponents, and including myself, there were five candidates because there were three Democrats who were running for the
0: primary. Okay, so and John Gale won the primary, yes. and then he, in the late stages Very of the late. campaign, uh, was asked to step down by the Democratic Party because of allegations. Is that fair? That's fair. Now, do you think now at the time the allegations I believe were anonymous? Did you think it was fair of the Democratic Party to ask John Gale to step down?
1: Well, from what I've read in the paper, the allegations, uh, the reason that the Democratic Party asked him to withdraw was because they had spoken to people who indicated that this was a prob that there was this issue and when it was addressed with attorney gale he denied those uh, allegations and then the party then spoke to uh, a woman who was involved with that that gave them more information and from the information that they received that's when they took it upon uh, themselves to ask him to withdraw not just for uh, the allegations but also for uh, the denial because it sounded like from what was in the Bangor Daily News the chairman of the Democratic Party believed uh, the victim the person that they that they had spoken to uh, so that was the reason that um, he was asked to withdraw so at that point it was no longer anonymous right there was actually people that they were speaking to and when they were asked uh, who do you back uh, one or the other and they went with the um, the person that they had spoken to and uh, withdrew their support, of his candidates, yeah, and so,
0: but do you think that's fair? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to reconcile is you—you th- you don't think politics should be a part of the uh, election, and yet the Democrats did a favor, I think, to your campaign by asking, really putting their finger on the scale and, and asking their candidate to step down. I mean, is I think it's fair, but I'm just curious—do do you think it's fair?
1: Well, I mean, uh, they didn't do me a personal favor at all. They, I think, acted with uh, whatever making any judgment call that they decided to make. No,
0: I mean, I just, I'm just pointing out, having ran an election, yes, Yes. to go from a very contested election (laughs) to um, having no opponent. No,
1: No, I understand that. And I understand how partisan the election became uh, just by seeing the number of blank votes that were out there, both for Democrats and Republicans, compared to an independent. Um, Running as an independent is not a benefit. It's actually very much a detriment. And I knew that getting in, that I wasn't going to have any party support. Uh, The district attorney's race, uh, even though in the criminal world is uh, gets a lot of attention. It doesn't really in No, you're um, fine. I'm going
0: to turn down your volume. Just
1: to I'm sorry. That. Right. Yeah um, The district attorneys race does not get a lot of attention from media per se And so I think a lot of people didn't know who the candidates were and so I obviously yes It was favorable for me um, to have the opponent both of my opponents withdraw um, but as i've said i mean i can only control what i can control. oh yeah 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 and yeah. i know how hard i worked how hard my family and friends work that i didn't have a political party back in me so i'm fully ready to take on this opportunity and i know how uh, i can uh, i know how um, lucky i am to actually be in the position but at the same time uh, this was a job i wanted and this is a job i think we can all do um we can all really take on as a community to really kind of approach in a better sense. And what's very nice about being an independent is that I don't owe anything to a, a political party. And so I can reach out to anybody I want to, uh, with the hope that they'll want to talk to me because I don't have that political affiliation that goes along with me.
0: Stephanie Anderson was the district attorney for, I think 28 years, 28 years. and, um, identified as a Republican. Did you think that her, uh, position was impacted necessarily by partisan politics?
1: You mean like the decisions that she made on an everyday basis? Yeah,
0: and her reputation in the community. I never got the impression that people thought of her as a partisan person or that partisan politics impacted her job.
1: No, I don't. But um, she also wasn't running at a time that uh, the politics are what they are these days, when a lot of people only identify you by your political party. And so I think... Uh, With Stephanie, she had the benefit of running unopposed uh, all but two times during the seven times that she was elected. Um, But no, I I think a prosecutor in general should not have political ties because what we do is in the interest of justice. Every action, every decision that we have to be making is in the interest of justice. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat. It doesn't matter if you're Republican. It doesn't matter if you're independent. So how
0: do you think you should be appointed if not if, if not? By election, how should the district attorney be appointed, in your view?
1: Oh, I think the district attorney should be elected.
0: Okay, but not uh, just a nonpartisan election. So you're not opposed to running a campaign, but you just think it shouldn't be a partisan campaign?
1: That's just me. I mean, uh, people can run as a Democrat or run as a Republican. That's just my personal view. Um, I think you would get a lot more people who would be educated voters if there wasn't the D, the R, or the I next to somebody's name on a ballot, because then they would actually have to go out and find out who the candidates are and what they stand for in order to make a decision. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, but no, I think the I think the district attorney should absolutely be an elected position, uh, given the fact that when it comes down to accountability, that's very important. Uh, district attorneys need to be held accountable to their electorate uh, so that people have so people can have that voice when it comes to public safety and law enforcement and criminal justice within their community. So I think it's a very important position to be elected.
0: OK, so let's transition now, since um, we've acknowledged that you did have a strike of a stroke of good luck conceding that you deserved the position you worked hard for. But it was certainly good luck that your opponents, for whatever circumstances, were out of the race. But focusing now on the one, the Democrat, John Gale, and just using him as an example in this context of like Me Too and restorative justice. What do you think men who have been accused of sexual assault, who have committed a sexual assault, um, should have to do to kind of come back (laughs) to to, to be restored? Like, I think there's a lot of men who perhaps um, committed acts under circumstances that they regret immensely, whether it's because of drugs or uh, poor judgment or whatever. And um, now that you're in a position and have seen firsthand what can happen to someone, what being accused and what it does to their family, what what, what can we do as a society to kind of clean things up?
1: I, I mean, in, what, in, in a political sense, I think that any time uh, a person is confronted with something in their past, they have to be honest about it. I think that that's vital, and I think for somebody who's running for a position like district attorney, uh, there needs to be an honesty factor that goes into that. And I think you would have to go and talk to uh, Chairman Bartlett from the Democratic Party to ask him why him and uh, his colleagues made the decision that they did. But I I assume, uh, from what I've seen in the papers, that a lot of it had to do with the fact that there was a denial there, there wasn't an acknowledgement. I think any time that someone wants to come back from making a decision, from doing something in their past that they regret, they need to have that acceptance to then ask for uh, forgiveness. I think that's a, one of the biggest problems. Um, I, if, uh, From my perspective in the criminal justice system, one of the biggest things that we have when somebody is alleged to have committed a crime, if they did commit that crime, acceptance of that responsibility is a very vital aspect to getting to that point where you can make amends with society or with victims, and that's when the sort of restorative elements can come in. Um,
0: can I ask? I think this sure. is a good this is a good time for me to ask this question. Um, because I think you're leading into it, is what is the purpose of of a criminal prosecution in in a democracy like we have in the United States? I mean, what is the purpose of of being a prosecutor and what does it do for our community?
1: Well, the purpose of being a prosecutor is obviously there's a legislature that makes laws, that makes uh, decisions on what should be societal norms with regards to uh, what will keep people safe. Uh, When somebody steps out of those bounds, when someone uh, allegedly breaks the law, then you need to have a body, you need to have an office, uh, you need to have somebody that's going to try to hold that person accountable. And how I view criminal prosecution is that we want to try to make a solution in the criminal justice system that is going to change the behavior for a defendant not to come back into the criminal justice system. To me, that's an ideal solution for somebody that's accused of a crime. And so if somebody is accused of a crime and they take responsibility for it, you wanna make sure that there is a resolution in the case, whether it be a fine, uh, jail, probation, or some diversionary tactic, like a deferred disposition or a filing, that will make it so that person's behavior is changed. So when when the case is over, that when they're back out in society, if they're ever faced with a, another decision that put them in in court in the first place, they'll rethink that and maybe not step out of bounds of what the law is.
0: What do you see as some of the weaknesses with the system as it currently exists? I mean, there's a lot of talk around reform of mm-hmm. the justice system, especially when it comes to the criminal justice system. Yeah. What are some of the weaknesses that you see that concern you?
1: Well, there are a lot of collateral consequences that come with guilty pleas or any sort of uh, uh, resolution that comes with a case. I, I think that we always need to take into, collater- uh, take into consideration collateral consequences as prosecutors. Um, some of those are to change that behavior like I was just talking about. Um, so I think taking on a bigger perspective of what sort of gains can we make as a society uh, with regards to these laws um, is an important factor to consider. Um, right now, I think that there, in a way, is almost too much uh, behavior that is deemed criminal. I think that the, it would be valuable for the legislature to take a look at some uh, things that are uh, crimes, such as suspended registrations, um, whether or not making having those be criminal or having them civil and and. Uh, for your audience, civil means that there is no risk of jail that comes along with violating them. It's sort of like a speeding ticket. Um, but I think uh, sort of decreasing the umbrella of what is criminal behavior could be valuable uh, because I think that sometimes we've we've kind of gone too far with regards to, and I'm spoke, speaking mostly of misdemeanors here, but what is uh, deemed criminal and what is not? And so I think that that's a, a weakness that could be addressed.
0: And are you I, concerned? are you concerned that the criminal justice system, um, perpetuates um, inequality and is is biased towards like poor people and minorities.
1: Well, from the, I, I definitely know that that is a concern, and I view it as a concern. Uh, I think in Cumberland County, uh, we as prosecutors in Cumberland County have had um, implicit bias uh, training, and with regards to making sure that we're looking at the uh, the whole, that we're not taking race into account, and even if you're not openly taking race into account, whether or not there's some sort of implicit bias that you have because of that. And I think that's a valuable tool to know. I definitely think in different parts of the country, there is an inherent and systematic racism that goes along with criminal justice. I myself have not seen it in Cumberland County. I think we have a very good group of uh, prosecutors and law enforcement That uh, make sure that they don't act in that way. But if it does, if we do see something that we do have that concern, we as prosecutors always have the ability uh, to dismiss that case and report it to the necessary authorities within a police department to make sure that uh, those police officers, if they they take that into account, are held um, accountable for that sort of action.
0: Now, is your department uh, keeping track of Statistics that are based on race—I mean, I see it as kind of a, um, a dilemma because, on the one hand, you want to have the data to support right. assertions about whether or not there's bias in the system. However, collecting the data means using race as a factor or right. as a trait, and and, th- and that has its complications.
1: You—you you just nailed it, and um, it's something that I'm considering on whether or not we want to take that into account because there are people who have brought that concern to my attention. Um, But at the same time, what you just said, I think when you start tracking things based upon uh, somebody's race, then you can always sort of fall down that slippery slope. Um, And so you don't want to be at any time uh, making prosecutorial decisions uh, based upon someone's race, their religion, their um, sexual orientation, or anything along those lines.
0: Are you concerned with the over-incarceration of citizens in the United States?
1: I think that mass incarceration is a concern Um, in Maine and in uh, Cumberland County. I don't see it as much of a concern as it is in other parts of the country. Uh, Mass incarceration is an idea that uh, has been out there that really showed a systematic uh, sort of targeting of a minority population. Um, And there's been some very interesting books and papers that have been uh, written about it and how it was a mechanism used a lot in the 70s and the 80s. And, but when I look at Maine and I look at uh, the incarceration rates that we have in, in our state compared to the rest of the country, I mean, we're 48th out of 50 for incarceration rates. Um, I don't think that it's as much of a concern as it is in other parts of the country.
0: Do you think that the private sector is better suited to provide incarceration services than local governments?
1: I don't know. I, I really wouldn't be able to answer um, that question because I haven't looked into it. I think that there's there can always be different uh, sort of uh, arguments on both sides. That some people would say that privatization uh, is more efficient and more uh, when it comes monetary wise, but then also when you have privatization, it doesn't have the accountability that comes along with the public sector. And I think that those are two very important factors to take into consideration when you're making this ultimate decision over somebody's liberty.
0: Well, and it seems to me uh, one of the issues with the privatization is the profit motive <laughs> that we've instead of um, incarceration and in the criminal justice system having a goal of, you know, reunification with society and change behavior, we have, you know, basically a machine, the right. industrial incarceration complex.
1: Yes, and I, I agree with that. And we've seen with the to me, we've seen with the opioid epidemic what what can happen when you have people who are only interested in money, as opposed to interested in doing what's right for the rest of society.
0: Well, are do you mean drug dealers themselves who are peddling no, the opioid on more our streets, about or? The, uh,
1: the pharmaceutical industry? That okay, well, actually, talk to me about that.
0: Sure. Do you have some concerns about the pharmaceutical industry uh, causing or having a link? to the opioid crisis and that we see on the streets? Yes,
1: I think that absolutely. The, the pharmaceutical company has a, it's a lot of responsibility when it comes to what we're facing with the opioid epidemic. Um, you can see that how OxyContin, when it first came on the market, was targeted and how it was used to um, basically get doctors to market this or market it to doctors and then doctors to distribute it, how it was distributed. I mean, they're all very troubling. Um, very uh, very troubling findings that you really see when you open up the, uh, the books, per se, on what actually happened and why we're in the situation we are. I mean, going back 15 years, the whole dynamic, or actually more than that, probably 20 years to the 90s, the whole dynamic about um, medical uh, treatment for patients completely changed. And it was led by the pharmaceutical companies when it came to documenting pain as a fifth vital sign. And when pain became the fifth vital sign and doctors were taught, the education was changed, when doctors were taught that if you leave a patient in pain, you were deviating from the standard of care. Any attorney um, in civil work or medical malpractice and any doctors taught that if you deviate from the standard of care, you're susceptible to a medical malpractice suit. So doctors started getting concerned on whether or not uh, they were being the ones who were uh, they basically found that they had to prescribe these drugs in order to make sure that they were providing their patients with the best care. Now we know those drugs were actually synthetic opioids and that they were, the prescriptions that we're getting out, we're giving out are now looked upon as way too long, that they were way too much. I, I think in Maine, we're fortunate to have uh, that the legislature and, and Maine health has really led the way, both of them with addressing those prescriptions. That. um, they are now, I think, limited to seven-day prescriptions that they can give out. And that's because doctors are sort of coming back and um, from where they were before on whether or not we need to prescribe these drugs as we did.
0: Well, some people might say that it's a little too late for Maine to be finally catching on. Oh, I mean, it's the it's opioid a, epidemic has been ravishing the state. It's late for the whole country. Yes, exactly. Right. So is there any interest on your behalf, or does your department— have the resources to do any white-collar criminal prosecution of doctors who are abusing uh, their prescription privileges or uh, taking advantage of addicted people and, and using the Medicare system perhaps to pad their pockets?
1: Well, if that information came across my desk or any police officers or law enforcement within Cumberland County, we would absolutely look into it. Um, I don't know right now if, uh whether or not uh, I've seen that happen. And like I said, I mean, I've met with me- members of uh, Maine Health and they're very much on board with helping out with this situation. I know that there are prosecutors across this country who are now taking uh, the pharmaceutical companies to court uh, with regards to how it was prescribed, why it was prescribed, what they knew, when they knew it, and whether or not that is uh, going to be criminal activity. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know if it came across my desk. Yes, I would absolutely be interested in it., uh, but right now, we are I'm dealing with the task at hand, which is this opioid epidemic, which is numerous people with substance use disorders. Something that we need to get out there more to educate the public about, that we need to make sure that people understand the dangers of these drugs, and we need to start a, a really sort of step up and start helping the people that are dealing with the substance use disorders.
0: Do you think that Long Creek Youth Center should close?
1: Well, right now, no, because we don't have an alternative to um, situations where you have a violent uh, juvenile who has committed an act such as murder or gross sexual assault. Um, So at this point, I would say no. I know that community-based alternatives um, are uh, something that should be looked into, but my concern with all of a sudden just a blanket, let's close Long Creek, I think would uh, would. Get away from the public safety needs that it does provide with regards to uh, juveniles who have or uh, committed a, a very heinous offense.
0: Is that something that you're, is in your budget, the Long Creek Youth Facility? No,
1: that's through d- the Department of Corrections. But we have a prosecutor that's been working uh, with juveniles in this county for over twenty years, and she's fantastic uh, with regards to uh, juvenile needs and uh, working within Long Creek and speaking to legislature, uh, legislators about. Uh, the needs and uh, what's best for for long uh, for uh, juveniles and I will say this Long Creek can hold up to uh, 200 individuals right now there's I believe the number is right now 22 who are confined to Long Creek
0: it's a lot of empty space
1: that's a lot of empty space
0: Um, speaking of money do you feel uh, according to an article that is somewhat dated um, but within the year it uh, describes the budget of your office as about $1.9 million. Does that sound mm-hmm. about right? It does. Now, do you see the need to go to the taxpayers and get an increase in resources to, to fully and adequately fund your office? Or well, things we, looking pretty good when it comes to the money?
1: The 1.9 is kind of deceiving because we have an interesting office, sort of, I'd describe as a hybrid. We have the prosecutors in our office, which there's at any given time about twenty. We the prosecutors are all state employees, so they come under the budget of uh, um, the state budget, with uh, the attorney general signing off on it and then being um, authorized by the governor. The staff that we have, which means that the um, uh, the victim witness or the victim assistants, the trial assistants, um, our support staff they are all county employees, and they are paid for out of the Cumberland County budget. Uh, so like I said, it's sort of this interesting hybrid that we have.
0: Um, so the $1.9 million only covers the staff and your salary, but the, the well, prosecutors... My,
1: my salary is paid by the state.
0: Oh, that's yes. interesting. So yes. you're elected by the county, but paid by the state. Yes. Hmm, okay. Um, so, but back to the question, do you see the need for an increase in your budget?
1: Well, I would like to see... Um, I, yes I, I I would because I would like to see more prosecutor positions um, and more trial assistant positions
0: how, uh, how would more prosecutor positions improve the quality of people's lives in Cumberland County
1: well right now what we do is we try to have these diversionary tactics that will change behavior um, that will make it so like I said the the rate of recidivism will fall and we uh, by doing that, though, it takes more time uh, from a prosecutor's standpoint on, allow, on on making sure we're making the right resolution, uh, because when you recommend something like a deferred disposition, you want to see uh, what sort of t- uh, steps that a defendant has taken that will show that they will be able to make the deferred disposition, that their behavior is changing, which means that you want to see uh, some counseling that they've Uh, taken on. You want to see letters of recommendation from people in the community that say that this person is a a good person who made a mistake, not a dangerous person. Uh, So that on a day-to-day basis can take longer uh, than just simply saying, oh, I'm just going to recommend a jail sentence and a fine. So when you, more positions I think would also allow more time to be spent on each case for a better outcome uh, that will be beneficial for society, uh, for public safety and for the defendants and victims. Uh, The other thing that I think we need to do is we need to take on, uh, we need to to have a position. We have two domestic violence prosecutors in my office. I would ideally like to see three uh, domestic violence prosecutors. Uh, We are divided into three teams um, when it comes to the jurisdictions within Cumberland County. And I would like to see a devoted domestic violence prosecutor for each one of those teams. Uh, we, I would also like to see a prosecutor as what my role was as a human trafficking prosecutor when I was assistant DA, uh, be to be a full-time role that would take on not just human trafficking, but also um, uh, drug prosecutions. Uh, we now know that the sex trafficking and the drug trafficking trade are very intertwined and, uh, What we need is somebody that will go aggressively after uh, drug traffickers but also recognize uh, drug users and also go after sex traffickers but recognize victims of sex trafficking and try to divert those people who are victims to uh, either services or some sort of help while also holding drug traffickers and sex traffickers more accountable.
0: Let me ask you this. Did your experience as a sex trafficking prosecutor inform your opinion about whether prostitution should be legal or illegal? Do you think that prostitution should be a crime?
1: Prostitution, um, I, I do. I Well, I don't make those decisions, If, like I said. It, no, I, I know,
0: but I'm just curious. Since you were up close and personal yeah. with the crime, do you think it's a crime? Well,
1: <laughs> unfortunately, I acknowledge that a lot of the women and to an extent men who work in prostitution are doing it by, because of survival. Um, I recognize that. I work with a lot of survivor groups. Um, I was actually just today, earlier, about two or three hours ago, was at the Greater Port- Portland Coalition Against Sex Trafficking uh, with a lot of survivor groups and a lot of women um, and men who work with uh, women who were involved in the life. Um, I think that when it comes to uh, whether or not it should be legal or not, I think that uh, it should be uh, still deemed illegal. I, I don't think, uh, but I like how it is addressed in Maine. In Maine, a woman cannot go to jail for first offense prostitution charge. Um, a man or or anybody, I'm sorry, I shouldn't just say a man, but anybody who is then uh, but is soliciting prostitution is susceptible to go to jail because it's sort of a threefold approach that we have to take on. We have to. Uh, to me, we have to go after the traffickers, the people who are sex trafficking, the people who are making money off of another human being selling their body. Uh, we need to address the market, which are the, the Johns, as we call them, um, who buy sex and try to and make it so if that is the behavior that someone is doing that they don't do it again and they're held responsible. But then we also need to help the victims. We need to help the uh, the men and women who are uh, prostituting uh, to try to get them out of that life, because in my experience as a prosecutor, uh, the women who are the victims of sex trafficking are some of the uh, some of the um, most hard hit uh, when it comes to uh, substance abuse disorders, um, mental illness, uh, a history of physical abuse, a history of sexual abuse, um, and then also just that if they're involved in that life, uh, they usually don't have a way out, that they don't have the means to uh, to get out. They don't have, uh, there's also a uh, lack of uh, trust in law enforcement, which I would, um, which I understand. But I, I've spoken to many women who are survivors because there are victims that can become survivors. There's some very great people in the Portland community that are working to help people. But from their perspective and from their experience, when because prostitution was illegal, um, they were able to get out from the life because of law enforcement being involved. And I, and last spring I had a meeting with uh, about 30 women who were in recovery and um, a lot of them during their substance use uh, had, had prostituted themselves in order to get a fix or had been trafficked. And when I asked, was it beneficial to be arrested, um, half of them raised their hand because that was sort of the moment that it was they were able to get out of the uh, to get out of the life. I understand the argument that if it is illegal, that you might have people who won't come forward out of fear. Uh, but what I try to do is ensure that there's going to be a prosecutor and law enforcement. Uh, law enforcement's le- been leading the way on educating people about this. But people who understand that we don't want to look at women or men who were involved in prostitution as criminals. We want to look at them as victims. And once we start doing that, then that's going to change the mindset of, um, whether or not, uh, these people can come in and get help from law enforcement.
0: District attorney Sarbeck. It's been a pleasure discussing these important events and issues with you this afternoon in just a few minutes or even a minute. Um, what are your goals for, for your, for the next year? Well,
1: um, one of my biggest goals that I have is that I think that we need to increase education and prevention when it comes to the opioid epidemic. I really want to see a lot more people get involved from the community, and including the district attorney's office, with leading the way when it comes to addressing what, to me, is the biggest public safety crisis that we've had. Um, I just saw a news report the other day that said that more people you are now more susceptible to dying by an overdose than you are by dying in a car accident. Now, that is, we...
0: Unacceptable. That's
1: unacceptable, and and it is scary to me. It is absolutely scary from being a a person who has a a about-to-be-three-year-old son to know that in 10 years, um, he's going to be growing up in a society where these synthetic opioids are, in in a perfect world, wouldn't be um, out there, but I have to be realistic and understand that um, they most likely are. But if you see how the views on uh, smoking have changed, that with youth these days, they do not uh, pick up, that most of them don't pick up cigarettes because it sort of Because they're the mindset, vaping. <laughs> well, I was just about to get into the vaping part, but, um, but you're right, though. Bef- before the vaping came along, there weren't many people that were taking on cigarettes. We can change the mindset if people understand what they're taking and the consequences of it. And so I think my, my goal is to get out there and increase uh, education and prevention.
0: Um, well, I hope you achieve yeah. your goal. Thank you. Thank you. It's Thanks been for a pleasure. Me. Take care.